0: If you haven't listened to part one of our series, I highly recommend that you do that first. Also, just a heads up, this episode contains content around sexual assault and abuse. On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, urban legends, conspiracy theories, hoaxes, and crazes, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria.
1: Greetings in the precious name
2: of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Jack Chick speaking. Now in the Illuminati, the Rothschilds are not humans. They're not just the richest family in the world. They are gods.
1: That means that there is a conspiracy. I mean, a real conspiracy.
3: We were literally in an Amityville situation because not only were the demons surfacing through a lane, the cult was attacking us with everything they had. The reaction I got from my pastor
2: friends, it was like those guys were out there saying, gee, I wonder if Chick's going to get iced.
0: Welcome back to our series on Chick Tract where we're exploring the freaky, fundamentalist comic books of chick publications, the cartoon kings of moral melodramas, of unbridled offensiveness, and of unintentional camp so blown out that they're sometimes mistaken for parodies when they're found out in the wild, left by believers in random locations so that sinners might stumble upon them and be saved. In the first episode of the series, we immersed ourselves in their hyper-real world full of cloaked Satanists and Illuminati witches, of Druid Halloween sacrifices, of menacing homosexuals, New Age public school indoctrination, and of course, sky-eyed weeping salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ. But chick publications didn't create this world all by themselves. In fact, they owed a great deal of their success to the men and women who brought them their life stories, who told them of their twisted pasts as witches controlling politicians, as spiritual warriors fighting against living demons, as secret agents plotting Protestant destruction for the Roman Catholic Church. For part two, we're going to meet several of these informants, these experts who provided their true testimony to Jack Chick, who used their words to bolster his increasingly bizarre and paranoid conspiracy theories that seemed to prove that all around him were seen and unseen forces trying to destroy his holy mission. In part one, we left off with one of Jack Chick and Fred Carter's 1982 Crusader comics called The Broken Cross, where our Christian crime-fighting duo faced off against human-sacrificing witches in a small town, its first pages announcing, My deepest appreciation to John Todd, ex-Grand Druid priest, for the authenticity of the occult information used in this story. Also to those others who came out of witchcraft and have verified this material.
2: I don't fool around, so I'll just uh, start right out. I can only make you one promise that what I've got to say is the truth it won't seem that way to some of you. It always really just seem that I'm either crazy or I'm the biggest liar and, and storyteller in the world.
0: When Jack first met him in the early 1970s, John Wayne Todd had been saved by Jesus just one year before, in part because a stranger had passed him the Chick tract Bewitched, the one I told you about in our first episode, where the satanic council of hell comes after hippie LSD user Ashley, who is saved by her grandmother's prayers right before she dies. John Todd recognized some of the occult information that was presented in Jack's cartoons, though he took issue with the assertion that witches worship Satan when he knew for a fact that they didn't even believe in Satan. How did he know that? Well, because at the time, he was a practicing druid witch himself, knowing full well that it was actually the mother goddess they exalted. When Todd told Jack about his first-hand experience with witchcraft, his former high-ranking status, and the secrets he knew about the grandest of all conspiracies run by something called the Illuminati, he was Hooked, and he went on to use the testimony of John Todd in both his tracts and full-sized comic books through the 1970s, helping to spread this concept of an all-powerful secret society that threatened the lives and livelihoods of all Christians in America and beyond.
2: Halloween is shaham. It's more or less their big party date. Their
0: super, super
2: day. Now, if they're in the human sacrifice, they also do human sacrifice at the time. But it's a big time to have an orgy and a big drug party. And see, the lower witches believe that the power for witchcraft comes from orgies and sex. The higher witches believe it's attained by human blood. Okay?
0: Todd was a kindred spirit to Jack Chick in many ways, spreading his messages as an indie outsider, recording his talks on cassette tapes and then selling them during his travels with his followers, copying and then distributing them as well. By the late 70s, these tapes had made their way through a huge number of fundamentalist, Baptist, Pentecostal, and charismatic Christian churches across America, and the effect they were having was a bit more chilling than Jack's comics. That's because John Todd was the kind of fanatic who encouraged a paranoid end times impulse, the storing of food, the hoarding of guns, and even violent uprisings against the Illuminati infested federal government in the name of the King of Kings. He told Jack that he had been a Druid priest since the age of 18, when he discovered that his hero, his great-great-great-great-grandfather, Lance Collins, owned the first ship that brought the Puritans to America. Puritans that he claimed were 50% witchcraft people. Because of his lineage, Todd was to be trained by his witch mom to be a high-ranking leader in an international druid council. At one time, he claimed that his mother was Louise Hubner, an astrologer, occult author, and crime psychic, known to guest on shows like Johnny Carson. In 1968, she actually became the only government-sanctioned witch in U.S. history, known as the official witch of Los Angeles County. The Department of Parks and Recreation was hoping to gain some attention for a 12-night concert series at the Hollywood Bowl, and they knew that an official witch would generate a whole lot of media buzz. At the beginning of the first evening, with thousands looking on, Luis came onto the stage to conduct the World's Largest Spellcast to Increase Sexual Vitality on the 78 cities in LA County. It went like this. Light Light the the flame, flame, bright bright the the fire. fire. Red Red is the the color color of of desire. desire. Not long after, however, she was officially defrocked of her gag title by the Parks and Rec supervisor because she kept using it to sell her books and merchandise. And so she cast a spell on him to decrease his sexual vitality to unknown results. Anyway, the same year that Luis Hubner found national fame as an official witch, a 19-year-old storefront preacher named John Todd started telling people that he grew up in a family of witches. But apparently, he had not shaken the impulse of his upbringing, and the very next year, at twenty, he joined the army with the express purpose of establishing witch covens at all the major military bases. He claimed that he became a Green Beret who fought in the Vietnam War until the early 1970s when he was transferred to Germany and got in a pistol fight with a superior and was then tried and sentenced to 35 years in prison for his murder. When his cellmate was let out, Todd asked him to get in touch with a witch he knew on the outside. And just days later, he was honorably discharged with the help of a mysterious senator and congressman, the shooting scrubbed from his official records. Todd later told Jack, that the politicians who helped him were part of the National Council of Witches and that they had procured the release of the Collins Boy so that he could take his rightful place as a leader in the Illuminati. He then learned that over 90% of the politicians in a 13-state area would be taking orders directly from him.
2: And I do believe that when I testified here at the last time, I explained who the person was that handed me the ceremonial knife. You might, before the night gets over, start to realize that Washington isn't bad as you thought it was. It's worse. But uh, the ceremony, by the way, was human sacrifice.
0: Very soon, Todd was trusted with their Illuminati sworn secrets, including their plans to take over the United States and then the entire world. Included in this massive plot were the World Council of Churches, the Anti-Defamation League, the Council of Foreign Affairs, the UN, the FBI, the CIA, the Communist Party, the ACLU, Freemasons, the Knights of Columbus, C.S. Lewis, Billy Graham, Pat Robertson, Jim Baker, Oral Roberts, and the John Birch Society. This world takeover would be complete, Todd claimed, in 1979 or 1982, whenever Jimmy Carter finally took his place as the Antichrist. He said he was named the personal witch to the Kennedy family, that JFK was actually alive and well, and that he'd recently gone for a ride with him on his private yacht. Todd told Jack that the Kennedys were some of the highest ranking members in the Illuminati, just beneath the famous Jewish banking family said to reign over the entire conspiracy.
2: Now, in the Illuminati, the rock cows are not humans. They're not the, just the richest family in the world. They are gods and human bodies. more more or less the counterfeit of what Jesus Christ was when he was on the earth. They're the sons and daughters of Lucifer in human body. So that this council that I was on is the private priesthood of those gods. And when those gods talk, the priests listen and the priestesses listen, then they tell political people.
0: The Illuminati's intricate, devious plan went like this. They would first remove all Republicans from positions of power in government, then revoke the tax-exempt status of churches, and then confiscate citizens' guns. An anti-hoarding law would pass, making it illegal to store food, water, and medical supplies the Rothschild family would manipulate the world banks to put all citizens under their financial control. The Illuminati would create a fake fuel shortage, destroy all cropland, issue new currency, and then security cards to control all financial activity. Then, one of the highest ranking witches in the Illuminati, Charles Manson, would raise his helter-skelter prison army of 200,000 white inmate bikers to create chaos in the cities by bombing churches and then raping and murdering citizens. Then the Illuminati would manufacture World War III, causing Israel to be besieged by the rest of the world to try to take control of their oil, with neutron bombs deployed to kill everyone but save the infrastructure from destruction, leading to the victors ruling over the holy city of Jerusalem. Interestingly, Todd also believed that the blueprints for this plan could be found in the libertarian novel Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, which he said had been commissioned by Philip Rothschild himself. Here is one of Todd's followers questioning Ayn Rand on the Phil Donahue show. Ms. Rand? Uh, Yeah. Uh. In your book, Atlas Shrugged, isn't it
4: true that you gave a blueprint for the world takeover by the Illuminati? By whom? The Illuminati. Who's the Illuminati? The Illuminati is the international bankers, uh, Rothschild, the Rockefellers, and all the Bilderbergers.
2: But you're, you're, You think her philosophy then lead, would lead to capitalist control of everything?
4: Atlas Shrugged, she gives an exact blueprint for eight years of the world takeover, and it's in... It's in, a, in force right now.
2: You, you accept that? Um,
3: Certainly not. To begin with, I never heard of any such
0: conspiracies. Certainly As he told it, John Todd was not just a political puppet master, but he was also a major player in druid pop culture propaganda, explained in an edition of their Crusader comic series called Spellbound. In it, we meet former druid Lance Collins, who has made it his Christian life's work to expose how the record industry has been taken over by witches who not only added special curses to the songs, but actually inserted demons into the recordings. Lance tells him that Druid hymns were made specifically for casting spells upon audiences, and that, quote, the same beats the Druids used are in the rock music of today.
2: Jack Chick got a call today, said a girl walked into a Christian bookstore and says, I hear John Todd's still alive. The guy said, yes. There's a revival breaking open in the occult world now. They've gotten the word there's a way out.
0: By 1972, John Todd was saved by the blood of Christ, and despite the bounty placed on his head, he vowed to take on the Illuminati in order to save the souls of his spiritual brothers and sisters who had been tricked into the dangerous occult lifestyle and to save the world from a total takeover. He hit the road to tell his frightening story as a speaker at dozens of congregations from coast to coast, leading trusting Christians into his growing paranoic messaging and end times predictions, with pastors noting that some of their congregates had begun to talk about armed revolution openly in church, including one account of a man saying that he would shoot his children before handing them over to the Illuminati. The sensational life stories told by John Todd, as you might have guessed, have been thoroughly debunked most especially in the 1979 book by protestant investigators daryl e hicks and dr david a lewis in the todd phenomenon ex-druid grand priest versus the illuminati fact or fantasy he did not come from some ancient collins bloodline his mother was not famous pop witch Louise Hubner, According to official documents, Todd was never a Green Beret in Vietnam. In fact, he never even went to Vietnam, instead working as a clerk and typist in Germany. His discharge had nothing to do with some murder he committed, but instead he was let go for quote, character and mental behavior disorder. He was examined twice during his time in the military, and reports said that he suffered from, quote, emotional instability and pseudologia fantastica. He had threatened to kill co-workers, threatened suicide, and the military psychologists wrote that they saw no hope for change. It appears his issues began in his teenage years, with records showing that he was hospitalized at age 14 for suicidal tendencies and for threatening to kill his father, who had been beating him so badly that it caused severe head injuries. At the time that John Todd became a Christian, he integrated himself into the Jesus movement that was taking place in coffee shops across the country, a kind of ministry meant to appeal to young people. His second wife claimed that he made sexual advances at the girls at his Bible study and that he actually impregnated her own teenage sister, who later confirmed the story. When several girls spoke with the pastors at a local Christian center about John Todd's behavior, members confronted him and he freaked out, denied all the accusations aggressively and stormed out, leaving his wife and then leaving town completely. He moved to Dayton, Ohio, where he, I kid you not, opened up an occult bookstore called The Witch's Cauldron with his third wife, Sheila. He taught classes on Wicca, both at his store and in his home, until police were alerted by several parents of teenage girls who claimed that Todd forced them into sexual situations as part of his druid initiation rites. He was arrested for statutory rape and transporting a minor across state lines, but he would serve just two months of his six-month sentence. It was none other than Jack Chick and his lawyer who were able to get Todd's sentence reduced for medical reasons, claiming that he was having life-threatening seizures in prison. John Todd would then be accused of even more sexual crimes, including sexually assaulting a woman at knife point, a charge for which he was found guilty and sentenced to 30 years in prison. Though other charges were pending, including the molestation of two children at a karate school he also ran, and despite the previous charge and conviction of lewd acts with minors that Jack helped him weasel out of, Todd still claimed that it was all a conspiracy against him, orchestrated by, of all people, strong Thurman, the South Carolina Republican senator who Todd had revealed to be a practicing Freemason, which he was, leading to his actual dismissal from the board at the Christian Bob Jones University. But the prominent preachers that had once believed everything he said were no longer buying it, naming John Todd as a charlatan, hustling donations out of local congregations, including money he promised to put toward a witch rehabilitation center that, shocker, never came to be. In The Unofficial Guide to the Art of Jack Chick by de facto expert Kurt Kirsteiner, he points out that after the fall of John Todd, Jack quietly edited a page of one of his Crusader comics that cited his experience. Originally, the text read, quote, Satan's attack through politics and finances comes through a well-organized undercover group called the Illuminati. It has been reported that this international group is controlled by the House of Rothschild. But because John Todd's apocalyptic promises had not panned out by the early 80s, Jack changed the ending of the comic so that it read, quote, It's been reported by Dr. A.R. Rivera, ex-Jesuit priest, that this international group is controlled by the Vatican. More after this. Factor Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com americanhysteria American Hysteria 50 and use code American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at Factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. And now back to the show. After the 1950s, mainstream Protestantism began to accept Catholics as legitimate Christians and sought to soften and unify the Christian religion in America. But of all the groups of people that Jack considered evil, the Roman Catholic Church won by a long shot. He found in Alberto Rivera the same thing he found in John Todd, a person who had lived a life that confirmed what he already felt to be true.
1: And as he sat upon the mound of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of a coming and of the end of the world? Three questions in one. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. That means that there is a conspiracy. I mean, a real conspiracy. And Jesus knew about it. And there is no two conspiracies, even so that you deal with more than 100, perhaps. <laughs> There are conspirators all around the corner. But the fact is, there is only one conspiracy and one conspirator. One conspiracy is the program, the plan that that conspirator has inspired throughout the century the spirit of the Antichrist. The Pope has come to be that conspirator and the world.
0: According to Jack's Crusader comic series called Alberto, at the age of seven, he was brought into a Spanish Catholic seminary for training. By the age of nine, he was brought to the bedside of his dying mother, who told him that she saw ugly creatures coming to get her and that she saw people on fire. She cried out that she was about to face a Christless eternity, despite the fact that she had always been a very religious woman. Confused and traumatized, the orphan Alberto was moved into a seminary run by the Roman Catholic order of the Jesuits but in the comic, we see that teenage Alberto began to get the sense that something was terribly wrong here. Illustrated in bright color, he recalls the sexual advances of a priest who snuck into his bed, how he punched him right in the face, and then how he was later scolded by another priest for not accepting his love, which was also God's love. Still, Alberto tried to continue in his faith, and he became a trusted disciple, given a special place in the Jesuit order, and then instructed by his superiors to pose as a Protestant and take down their most hated enemy from within. Under their direction, he allowed himself to get caught in a Spanish raid against Protestants so that he would be named a heretic in the newspaper to prove that he was really a Protestant and not some Jesuit plant. And from that day forward, Alberto Rivera would become a man of a zillion false flags. Through his stories, Jack's suspicions were confirmed. Everything was a grand conspiracy to make Protestants look bad, and Alberto's ongoing mission targeted the pastors of their churches. The plan went like this. One, discredit him. Two, isolate him. Three, death by various means. To discredit him, they would do things like hire an 18-year-old Catholic agent to accuse a pastor of having an affair with her, or they would plant a young woman on the side of a road they knew a pastor would be driving on, and when he went to help her, she would scream rape and then rip her clothes. If that didn't work, they would isolate him. To do this, the Jesuit team conspired with government agencies to go after pastors for drug crimes and fraud until their congregations deemed them too controversial and they were cast out of the community. If neither of these two plans worked, they would go to number three, death by various means. Maybe a pastor is hit by a car, and then maybe at the hospital, a Catholic agent posing as a nurse pulls the plug. Maybe they poison his meals. Maybe they slip him drugs that make him act psychotic so they can commit him to a mental institution. Maybe he dies in a mysterious fight when a stranger shanks him in the dark or maybe he is simply assassinated by an anonymous bullet. But the conspiracy went far deeper than this. Where John Todd's story lightly hinted at the Jewish Illuminati conspiracy theories we still hear today by naming the Rothschild family as its leaders, Jack's work was otherwise shockingly void of the anti-Semitism generally rampant in world domination conspiracies. Of course, Jewish people, like basically all of us, are presented as hell-bound, and of course, Jack would sometimes fall back on anti-Jewish tropes. But in general, Jack was hyper-focused, hyper-obsessed with the evil of the Catholic Church, what he considered to be the Whore of Babylon. For example, we can look to the 1982 Crusader comic called The Godfathers. The story opens with a neo-Nazi spray-painting a swastika on the side of a synagogue just as a man confronts him and puts him into a headlock. On a news show the next day, we see an interview with a rabbi condemning his actions, and then we see the neo-Nazis rebuttal as he announces, It's time the people realized it's the lousy Jews who are behind all our problems. They own everything. And this story about six million Jews being killed is just one more lie made up by the Jewish press. Of course there was no Holocaust. It was all a big lie. But then, Alberto tells the Crusaders, Jim and Tim, that when he was under oath in the Jesuit order, they admitted that it was them who were the real architects behind the Nazi party, that it was them who murdered millions of Jewish people because they stood in the way of the Roman Catholic Church, moving their headquarters to the holy city of Jerusalem. Then, fascinatingly, we learn that the Jesuits pressured a handful of Jews to write the Protocols of the Elders of Zion the very hoax document that has long served as the main piece of evidence for the concept of the worldwide Jewish conspiracy to take over the world, spread first in America by Henry Ford in the 1930s and then exported to Hitler, who used it as justification for his crimes. The comic debunks it all as a forgery which it is, saying that it was created with the express purpose of demonizing Jewish people and preventing them from keeping control of Jerusalem. During World War II, Alberto claimed that the Vatican took in 1,000 Jewish people, not to protect them, but just in case their complicated plan failed and the Nazis lost, after which they could claim that they were indeed on the side of the Jewish people. They apparently ordered Catholic families to protect Jews in their homes for the sole purpose of the good PR it would provide to the church for the future books and movies they knew were going to be made about the war. Within the borders of America, Alberto claimed that the Ku Klux Klan was not founded by Protestants that hated Jewish people, Black people, and Catholics, but by Jesuit Catholics who were trying to make Protestants look bad in order to push Black people to choose Catholicism as their religion. You see, the Jesuits were all about that long con. Alberto also swore that the Vatican has a secret computer that has all the names of every Protestant pastor and church member in the world, and that in the future, those who go against the Catholic One World Super Church will be slaughtered in a new inquisition. One section of the Godfather's comic, below photos of Jewish mass graves and executions, reads, God help us if the United States ever signs a contract with the Vatican. Catholicism would be the only recognized religion in the U.S., and it would be you and your children appearing in the pictures above. After his years as a Jesuit Catholic secret agent, after remembering what his mom had been trying to tell him about her Christless eternity, Alberto realized once and for all that it was the Protestant faith that was the real way to the one God, Jesus Christ, not the popes and the priests he said claimed to be gods themselves. That's when he went before an audience of 50,000 and denounced his Catholic faith. Immediately after, he was kidnapped by the Jesuits and taken to a secret location in Spain where he was tortured and poisoned and close to death put into an iron lung completely helpless he asked for christ to forgive his sins to become his lord and personal savior and in that moment he was healed completely got up and out of the machine and left catholicism forever he fled to london with a fake passport and then came to america where he met jack chick and told him his whole fantastical story. Eventually, a whopping six of Jack's comics would feature the ex-Catholic priest who was now ready to take down the Catholic Church at all costs, even as the threats and assassination attempts had him and his wife fearing for their lives. Now, I couldn't possibly get into the minutia of Alberto's credibility. But what we do know is that it appears he had a bit of a financial crimes problem. Stolen credit cards, bad checks, fraud, collecting money for fake Protestant colleges, wanted in several states and countries. The three doctorates and several other college degrees that Alberto claimed to have were all from a diploma mill in Colorado. And it was found out that he was expelled from a high school seminary in Costa Rica for, quote, continually lying and for defiance of seminary authority. At the time he claimed to have been a Jesuit priest living in Spain, evidence seems to show that he worked jobs in New Jersey, Texas, and California. He also had two children during the years he was supposedly celibate. It was Protestant publications like Christianity Today and Cornerstone magazine that would do the heavy lifting in debunking his claims, and Chick publications shot back multiple times with their own photocopied evidence of documents that they claimed corroborated his tales, and his wife maintained long after his death that they indeed received death threats and attempts on both their lives. Now, I'm no Roman Catholic Church apologist, but these are some pretty heavy allegations to throw out. And, unsurprisingly, many Christian bookstores across the country decided to stop selling these comics to avoid unnecessary controversy and to keep their Catholic customers. But Jack would tell his audience through his newsletters that these bookstores had in fact been infiltrated by the Vatican's secret propaganda agents who had threatened the owners in various ways until they pulled Alberto off the shelves. More after this. And now, back to the show. By the mid-1980s and the Reagan era's hyper-Christian revival, A new style of memoir was proving to be a smash hit bestseller again and again. Sensational stories of Christians who claimed their pasts were haunted by participation in satanic cults or histories of horrific abuse by satanic cults, and often both. Chick Publications followed the trend, moving beyond tracts and comics and printing actual nonfiction books, including two by a woman named Dr. Rebecca Brown, called He Came to Set the Captives Free and Prepare for War. Taking a cue from John Todd, Chick Publications also released two companion cassette tapes called Closet Witches. The tapes contain four hours of his interviews with the author, Dr. Rebecca Brown, as well as her mysterious former patient and friend known only as Elaine
2: greetings in the precious name of our lord jesus christ this is jack chick speaking some time ago the lord sent two ladies to chick publications i've known them and i've seen the fruits of their labor they've been kind enough to help me out with three tracks which will be coming out in 1986 which i think are going to win many many souls to christ their names are rebecca and elaine These two ladies are experts in the world of the occult.
0: In Closet Witches, Elaine tells her absolutely wild personal history, beginning back when she was a baby, when she says she was born with a cleft palate, her family unable to afford the corrective surgery. That is, until a friend of her mother said she could provide the operation for only a thimble full of her infant blood. Though this seemed strange, her mother was assured that the offering was for some kind of medical trial, but of course it was actually sold to Satan straight up. Years later, when Elaine was in elementary school, she met a girl in her Bible study class who invited her to a summer camp that at first appeared normal, but was actually designed to recruit kids into witchcraft. And there, she started her long journey, harnessing the power that she had felt inside as long as she could remember. All it took was a few short years, and she was named top witch in a national competition. As her influence grew, Satan himself took a serious liking to Elaine, and he proposed marriage, to which she happily obliged, as she felt he was a romantic at heart, and she thought he could make a caring partner. This was not a metaphorical marriage, but a very literal one that took place in a rented-out Presbyterian church. Elaine described how her dark prince wore a white tuxedo for the event, and how after the vows were complete, a limo drove them to Satan's private jet to take them on what Elaine called their haunted honeymoon at a California mansion.
4: Now there's only five to 10 um, regional brides of Satan or Lucifer, depending on what part of the country you come from, in in this country at one time. There are many brides of Satan um, within a local area, but regional brides are, are not that many. My main hometown assignment However, was to uh, infiltrate and destroy um, local Christian Bible believing churches. That was my main job.
0: Elaine threw herself into this Alberto esque work of Protestant infiltration rising in the ranks until she became a worldwide ambassador as part of a global occult network. She had become possessed by a demon she called Manchan that was able to speak every language. And so she was able to hold meetings with important politicians, royalty, religious leaders, and celebrities all over the world much to Jack's absolute glee, she claimed that the Pope was the leader of the whole secret order and that she had met with him personally during her international satanic world unification tour through Mecca, Israel, and Egypt. But eventually, Elaine was given an even more important task from her husband, the devil, who told her there was a young, smart-aleck doctor working at one of his special hospitals. Satan was furious that this doctor was meddling in the work of his top witches that he had sent to infiltrate Ball Memorial Hospital in order to possess sick patients and commit blood sacrifices. On the Closet Witches tape, as well as in her memoirs put out by Chick Publications, Dr. Rebecca Brown, close friend to Elaine, tells Jack about how she entered medical school and received her license in 1976 before moving to Muncie, Indiana, to start her residency at Ball Memorial Hospital. Things seemed to be going well at first, until she noticed that patients around her were becoming delirious and then dying with no good explanation, crying out that they were seeing demons surrounding their hospital beds. A long-time practicing Christian herself, Rebecca claimed that she was in constant conversation with Jesus and began performing DIY exorcisms on his behalf, lining up candles in patients' rooms, staying up all night to keep the demons at bay with her prayers. When Elaine arrived at her husband Satan's special hospital as an agent of the undercover coven, Rebecca was one of her doctors, and though she appeared very sick, all her medical tests came back negative. Rebecca clocked her as one of the potentially possessed patients, and the more time she spent speaking to Elaine, the more she discovered her desperate situation.
3: Elaine's case was uh, certainly a very difficult one because I knew she was sick. She was so obnoxious to me all the time. Um, And so I would say, yes, Lord, please put your love in my heart for this woman because she is certainly unlovable. Um, But the problem was I was never given the opportunity to ever really speak to Elaine herself. I was only speaking to the demons without knowing it. I didn't know what to do because she was just so resistant. And finally I said, well, I can't handle you. I just can't handle you, but I know who can. And I prayed with her right then and there. And I asked the Lord to take Elaine in his hands and to handle her.
0: Right before Elaine had left to take down a smart-aleck doctor whose powerful piety had proven to be a match for the devil's vast demonic army, Jesus had started to eke a little salvation into her witchcraft-hardened heart. Elaine confided this to Rebecca who saw an opportunity to wrest her away from Satan's control. And for weeks, they battled demons in that little hospital room. And their combined powers were so successful that Satan personally promised to sacrifice both the women in a spring ceremony if they ever spoke to each other again. But they would not be intimidated. They were both animated now by the Holy Spirit, imbued with a new kind of power that was greater than anything Elaine had experienced on the dark side. Claiming that the devil turned their own churches against them and caused their families to try to get them committed for psychiatric evaluations, they soon fled the state completely to start again, with Rebecca opening her own private practice with a specialization in saving souls apparently converting a thousand people while operating an underground railroad for former witches escaping organized Satanism. But the battle continued to rage as the devil sent all his minions to kill the duo in the home they share.
2: All right, now what happened? Did, did your home turn into a nightmare at this point?
3: Yes, we were literally in an amityville situation because not only were the demons surfacing through a lane, and God permitted this for my training, mm-hmm. but also the cult was attacking us with everything they had. They were sending demons into my home. They were astral projecting in.
2: Now, did you have furniture flying around? Yes,
3: we, it was, and it was nothing for me to be grabbed at night when if i went to bed and be pulled out of the bed and thrown across the room against the wall we were bruises Good from night. head to toe um
2: it was like a battlefield
3: yes it was it was nothing to have a chair come flying across the room at first
2: so it's, I, it was just like the stuff you see in the movies then
3: yes isn't it? yes and at first i was sitting there saying
0: through sure their I'm belief in jesus christ they prevailed against all odds. And after they beat Elaine's now ex-husband Satan through the power of their prayer, the pair linked up not only with Jack Chick, but also with the king of satanic panic programming himself, Geraldo Rivera, telling their story to millions of enthralled Americans who were already primed to believe them. But soon, the debunkers came. This time, it was evangelical counter-cult activists M. Kurt Godelman, G. Richard Fisher, and Paul R. Blizzard, who put together a detailed expose. Interviews with relatives easily disproved Elaine's outrageous stories. They said she'd been working at a drive-in restaurant, and then a car wash, and then training to become a licensed nurse. All at the same time, she was allegedly a high-ranking witch and married to Satan, traveling the world to do his bidding. They said that telling tall tales had always been in Elaine's nature, stretching back into childhood. But what they discovered about Rebecca was much darker than just a fraudulent autobiography. The expose also revealed how former coworkers and patients had made serious accusations against Dr. Rebecca Brown that she had come under investigation by the medical board for malpractice. The 19 former patients who eventually gave their testimony said they were so scared of Rebecca Brown that they refused to give their addresses fearing retaliation from this doctor who'd been seen carrying a handgun around the hospital to threaten demons inside her patients. One witness testified that Dr. Brown's diagnosis, quote, was that I was possessed by many demons, including one like an octopus with long tentacles that went into my body's molecular structure. Witnesses described Dr. Brown's methods of healing, smearing crosses on the office doors and windows with anointing oil, and then holding patients by the chin, staring deeply into their eyes and performing a prayer ritual for two hours. The results of this investigation led to an emergency suspension of her medical license. Rebecca was also accused of abusing Elaine when a police officer was contacted by a social worker from a hospital in Indianapolis. She was concerned about a patient who had arrived during a life-threatening overdose and was also covered head to toe with inflamed skin lesions. After the social worker went to her residence, she discovered that Elaine and Rebecca had been living together in a hoarder house filled with garbage, animal waste, and used syringes. The scope of this inquiry grew as authorities enlisted the attorney general's office, the FDA, St. John's Hospital, and the Indiana Medical Licensing Board to look deeper into Rebecca Brown, or Dr. Ruth Bailey, as she was known before she changed her name and became a best-selling Christian author. An even more detailed investigation would show that in just six months' time, she had written more than 100 prescriptions for the strong opioid Demerol and had them sent to four different pharmacies. In order to treat Elaine's pain from her demonic possession, Rebecca had been giving her so many Demerol injections that she was able to withstand three to four times the normally lethal amount. It turned out that Rebecca had a powerful tactic to cure these serious satanic illnesses that plagued so many of her patients. She would open spiritual doorways within herself and allow the patient's maladies to enter her own body thus sharing their pain and then fighting the evil spirits within the great battlefield of her internal world. And what do you think that Rebecca needed to wrestle these twisted beasts that thrashed inside her body to take on and deal with such otherworldly pain and suffering? a whole buckload of Demerol.
3: I think the scriptures make it very plain that Satan is able to put thoughts in our minds. That's how he communicates with us. He is able to inject a thought into our mind, just the same as a doctor would inject a shot of medication into someone's body.
0: Of course, just like the charges against John Todd and against Alberto Rivera, Jack believed that these women had been set up by the seen and unseen forces that they claimed attacked them from all sides, doing anything and everything to bring down those who joined Christ in the universal battle for the soul of man. How much of Rebecca's story was a scam to get Demerol remains to be seen, as the medical board's psychiatric specialist concluded that Rebecca likely had paranoid schizophrenia. Both Rebecca and Elaine had also been injecting potentially deadly doses of a serious opioid for months, if not years, which could have caused disorientation, hallucinations, and paradoxical behavior disturbances. How much of John Todd's story was a scam to sell tapes and get access to underaged girls also remains to be seen. The same goes for Alberto Rivera and the fraud he committed in various states and countries, not to mention the money likely gained from their work with Chick Publications. I have to admit that these experts are smart, well-spoken, prolific, and at times, kind of convincing. Did they believe the stories they told? Were they experiencing mental illness-induced hallucinations, delusions from drug addiction, reactions to childhood trauma? Or were they grifters out for cash or sex or fame? Was it a combination of all of the above? Something each expert had in common was the assertion that everything bad they were accused of doing was a farce, a lie, a conspiracy against them because the work they were doing was just that spiritually monumental. Their crimes magically turned into proof that they are the good ones. I believe that Jack believed. Each of these people wholeheartedly. His sincerity is ever present in his work. I believe he ignored the terrible things they did, even aided and abetted them, because they were the ones who confirmed to him his own piety and paranoia and persecution. They were the ones who had the proof that he was not some nutcase yelling at the clouds as many prominent preachers would eventually cast him to be, but a hero bringing as many souls to heaven with him as he possibly could, no matter what the worldly cost. Now it was against
4: you and your family, Jack, that we were sent against because of what you were publishing here at your publishing company because you were getting through to a lot in Satanism because you were talking out against so many things that the Satanists back and because of that you were to be put out of the way but because of your love for Jesus Christ and his love for you you have protection that I had never seen before that was the first time I'd ever come against anything that was stronger than the
0: power that I had had.
1: Praise God.
0: For the final episode in our series on Chick Tracts, it's time to look back at Jack's life. Really look and ask, what could have happened to this man that made him the way he was? His childhood, his family traumas, the traumas of war, the things that he loved, and the cultural forces that shaped the unique work that he would leave behind. We'll try to piece together what could have led to a lifetime so doggedly dedicated to writing and illustrating these gruesome little horror morality plays, and will visit an alternate universe where Jack Chick could have become a guy I'd totally hang out with. This was American Hysteria. If you'd like to get ad-free early episodes, head to patreon.com americanhysteria American Hysteria. If you become a patron, you'll also get access to our other podcast, Hysteria Home Companion, a talk show I do with our producer, Miranda, where we tell you the best stories that were cut from the episodes that's patreon.com slash American and you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're supporting our show. Another way you can support our show is to leave us a five-star review on the app of your choosing. It really helps us out. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Our sound design is by Clear como Studios. Our assistant researcher is Riley Swadelius Smith. Our co-producer and editor is Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening. And I've been getting reports of listeners finding Chick Tracts out in the wild. So again, keep your eyes open and please let us know if you find one. Have a great
1: week. May God bless you. Bye-bye.